You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast featuring some of Indiana's most fascinating men and women whose impact has shaped our state, our communities, and us. Join us as we discuss their imprint on our history. Leaders and Legends is brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated, your local veteran business enterprise specializing in public relations, media relations, public outreach, crisis communications, and digital photography. My name is Robert Bain, Principal of Veteran Strategies, former Deputy Chief of Staff to Mayor Greg Ballard, and Communications Director for the Indiana Republican Party. I'm honored to be your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, the Crown Plaza Hotel and Grain Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the law firm of Bose, McKinney, and Evans, and the Bose Public Affairs Group, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast today. Our guests are Lynn Vincent and Sarah Vladek. They have offered, authored the definitive account of the famed USS Indianapolis, the ship and crew of which we are all so proud of here as residents of Indianapolis and as Hoosiers, veterans, Americans, and people who think so highly of the greatest generation. Lynn and Sarah, thank you very much. Thanks, Robert. It's nice to be here. Very quickly, please tell us about yourself. Uh, Lynn, I know, is a U.S. Navy veteran, and since I'm an Army veteran, we tend to treat um, veterans with respect, unless they were in the Navy, and then we make exceptions. (laughs) But please go ahead, Lynn, and then go ahead, Sarah. Tell us about your career and what kind of led you to collaborate on this book. Well, thanks, Robert. Um, I'll have to make fun of you later for serving in the <laughs> army, but for now, <laughs> I'll uh, <laughs> I'll say that um, I started off as a magazine writer for World Magazine and worked there for ten or eleven years before moving into books. And um, I was always really inspired by narrative nonfiction books, like the ones written by Mark Bowden, like Black Hawk Down or John Krakow or Into Thin Air. Uh, Laura Hillenbrand's uh, Sea Biscuit. And so these kind of real, true adventure stories really inspire me. And I uh, hadn't really been able to write anything like that until a young filmmaker named Sarah Vladek contacted me out of the blue in 2011 and uh, said that she had been in a relationship with the survivors of the USS Indianapolis at that time, I guess it was for um, 10 years, maybe, Sarah. Is that right? And said, uh, and, and Sarah had actually written a screenplay and pitched it to a major uh, network. And they said, hey, this is the best thing we've seen since Band of Brothers. But we only base miniseries on books. So you'll need to write a book. And Sarah. Oh, that's said, interesting. Yeah. She. Well, the, the the business model for film was different back then, and Sarah was a filmmaker by trade, and she's like, darn it, I don't know how to write a book. 
So she reached out to me. Um, and this is Sarah. And yeah, I, I, at the time, um, I actually got interested in the story of Indianapolis itself back in um, middle school, like early freshman year of high school. And uh, just that, what an incredible story it was. I didn't think it was true, so I went to the library. Um, I saw it in a documentary, and they, they kind of reduced it to a single line, which was it was the ship that carried the bomb and was sunk at the end of World War II, and that's, that's all it said. And so when I looked into it, and that got the interest going, but then when I graduated later on from college, um, I thought, well, you know, no one's made a movie about this guy. I'm going to make a movie about this. And I was working in film production and working as a writer and interning and doing all those things, those fun things. But in the background, like I love true story. I love veterans. I love history. And this story of Indianapolis kept popping up. And I really wanted to meet the survivors of it. And so I reached out to Paul and Mary Lou Murphy, who were um, at the time the chairman and secretary of the survivors organization. And they invited me to a reunion. In Indianapolis, and that was in 2001, and that was a huge deal for me. It was like, you know, imagine, you know, your biggest heroes, celebrities, or whatever, you know, category those heroes fall into. But for me, it was veterans. <laughs> I was absolutely that nerdy kid, but I loved our military heroes, and I just couldn't believe I got to go hang out with them. And Jimmy O'Donnell was there, and John Gamovia, and. Um, just, you know, at the time, there was 117 survivors still living. And so going to the reunions was quite the event. And um, just started visiting them, hanging out. And next thing I know, um, Mary Lou and Paul and several of the guys um, sat me down at a fabulous Denny's in Las Vegas and said that they wanted me to be their storyteller. And so that's kind of the origins of all this. But it started off really, like Lynn said, as being a movie. And then but, you know, I did, um, we did a documentary called USS Indianapolis for Legacy with my film business partner, Melanie um, Johnson. And, you know, my, while that whole time, you know, while that was happening, we were negotiating about the screenplay and doing the movie and miniseries. And then I really, you know, had my heart set on and prayed about and was very involved with getting the right person to um, do this book because I had no idea what I was doing and I wanted advice and um, turns out that my mother-in-law had Lynn come speak at her book club and I needed the email you know I mean I asked for the email and I was scared to death because I Lynn is this incredible author and you know just such a role model and so talented and there was me this dorky you know 20 something year old who really just wanted to make you know a movie and a book and tell this Indianapolis story and we connected and, you know, long story short, we talked for a while and we turned out to be great friends and we decided we both, you know, soon realized that we wanted to work together and um, the collaborating process was incredible. I mean, I'm not even blowing this out of proportion. She has become one of my best friends and mm -hmm. we work so well together and we have so much fun and we laugh and we talk about food and coffee and chocolate a lot, but we get it done. And so it's been this amazing experience. And, you know, nothing, nothing short of a mini miracle of working together and pulling this off uh, to be able to tell the story properly. Well, as a dorky 50-some-year-old who decided to email Lynn out of the blue and got a very gracious, very kind response uh, based on my request to have you both 
on the podcast. I feel your pain, Sarah. It it, it took me one or two <laughs> passes in my email before I felt confident enough to send. And I'm glad that oh you my two. Gosh. Same thing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad that you two connected. See later, and then... see later. He later pulled up the email that after we became besties, you know, she later pulled up the email and counted, I think, 16 drafts before something like that. It was some, it was some super embarrassing high number of drafts. <laughs> well, let's, let me go on just for another little bit. Um, the book is called Indianapolis, the true story of the worst sea disaster in U.S. naval history and the 50-year fight to exonerate an innocent man. I have already sent the Amazon link to several of my friends just in the past 24 hours who have asked me about it. If you go on Amazon, you will see uh, all five stars completely lit up. You will see words like gripping. This yarn has it all. A wonderful book. A must read. Lynn has written. Let's put it this way. Lynn has sold over 10 million copies of her works. She uh, has been a journalist. She has been a chronicler of amazing deeds and amazing people besides her service in the Navy for which we give her hell, but then thank her at the same time. Sarah has appeared and done productions for numerous outlets, all of which you've heard of, Trading Spaces, Good Morning America, the Kids' Choice Awards, and Nickelodeon. I'm sure I watched something you were producing or were involved with when my kids were younger. She also has been a friend to the survivors of the USS Indianapolis and their families for several years and has served as an on-screen historian for World War II for outlets such as the National Geographic so the two authors with whom we speak today not only have enlightened and educated millions upon millions of people around the world, but they've also consented to come on the Leaders and Legends podcast, and we're very, very grateful. The first question I have to ask you is, what did you learn through writing this book that you didn't know when you started writing the book? I had a general idea of what the Indianapolis story was about. And what Sarah and I did was we decided to take it all the way down to the studs, if you will, um, rather than relying on any previous narrative, because as you know, Robert, there were numerous books written before we came along and, you know, we're, so grateful for all of those people who came before us, particularly um, Robert Newcomb, who wrote Abandoned Ships, and uh, Kurzman, who wrote Fatal Voyage, and Doug Stanton, who wrote In Harm's Way. Uh, but we wanted to, uh, we wanted to, you know, stand on the shoulders of their visions, but not replicate any of their work, not rely on any of their work. And so we went to the National Archives, we went to the Naval War College, we went to the Library of Congress, we went to even to the USS Salem, which is the last World War II heavy cruiser afloat, which is, you know, so it's very much like Indianapolis was before she sank. And so through all of that process and through the detailed, sometimes tedious sifting of all of this information, which literally stands 
you know, towering feet tall of documents, and not to mention, I mean, this stuff fills rooms in Sarah's house. Um, we just learned the tremendous sacrifice that these men made. Um, and we learned the tremendous sacrifices that their families made. We also got to know them more as people. Sarah has a lot longer relationship with the survivors than, than I have. And so um, I think she said when she started um, building a relationship with the survivors, there were 117 living. When I started building a relationship with the survivors, there were only about 34 living. And so you can see the, the big gap there. But nevertheless, um, what that really inspired me to do was to get to know the men who had already passed on. And that was such a blessing for me. As a matter of fact, I sort of have a historical crush on one of the Lost at Sea guys you read about him in the book. It was um, Earl Henry, the, the dentist. The dentist. I kind of, the dentist, yes. Um, and I think I sort of fell in love with him because his son, his living son, passed on to us 160 pages of love letters that Earl had written to his wife. And I just, you know, they, they were just wonderful. And so I think uh, one of the things that I learned is how much I enjoy getting to know these people who weren't even with us anymore. That was a really profound experience for me. Sarah? Um, I would kind of add on to that, too. And I think for me, you know, I've worked on this story and been part of it, this Indianapolis thing essentially my entire adult life since I was 21 years old. And so I graduated college and kind of walked into this. And I have such a respect, a profound respect for all veterans, um, just especially with the World War II generation and what they did and what their wives did at home and what people did at home for the country. And, you know, I, I don't think I understood that fully until I got to know the guys and their families and to, you know, be able to kind of have a small peek into what their lives were like in 19, in the 40s, and then all the way since then, and the ups and downs and what they've survived through and the friendships that they formed and, you know, despite all odds, um, came out with a positive outlook and, and just how they face things. I think I, that taught me more than anything you know, when I sit here and I'm grumpy about something or, you know, the status of the world, like, I think, you know, I can reflect on them and how they handle it. And um, it, it just gives me a much clearer perspective on the bigger picture. And I think also I learned the importance of sharing this with kids. Um, I didn't see it fully until um, we did the documentary and we shared it with classrooms. And um, teachers would often have their students write us letters. And from those letters, we got things from, we're talking as young as fourth grade, um, watched this program and sent things and said, I finally understand what people mean when they say the cost of freedom. Or I finally, you know, I want to talk to my grandfather about their service. Or I, um, I see the need for standing for the flag. I respect that. And that came from young kids. And so, you know, I, when we set out to do this or tell this story, I'm not sure who I had in mind to, to 
be the one embracing it, but to see kids see it and understand it and respect it and then want to, you know, turn around and, and extend that respect to those around them, their teachers, their elders, their community. I mean, that is, that's a big deal. And I, I, that's just something that I didn't see coming and I'm just so darn proud of and in awe of, you know? Well, it's, it's certainly something that I wanted to ask you, and I'm going to ask this question now, even though I had it written down to ask later. Um, and this question is only related to my personal experience. Uh, when I was interviewing um, Sammy Davis for the podcast, I, I could barely keep it together just for his sacrifice and all that he did. And um, one of our sponsors is McAllister Machinery and the, the, Chairman of McAllister Machinery, P.E. McAllister, who was a supporter of the USS Indianapolis Group, recently passed uh, last October at the age of 101. He was involved in World War II uh, in North Africa, especially. I can barely say his name or the sponsorship name without choking and tearing up. So the question I wanted to ask both of you before we move on is how often did that happen to you Were the emotion of looking a survivor in the eye or reading about what happened and reading about the fellows who didn't make it. And unfortunately the ultimate uh, decision of captain McVeigh to take his own life. How often did the emotions of what happened of what you read and what you were working on just overcome you, Sarah? to this day all the time um, and it catches me off guard I think I, I've heard it all or read it all or seen it all but um, the, during the interview process was, was really where it, it got me the most because you know I'm sitting in a, in their living rooms oftentimes and you know I, I did interviews with 107 I believe of the, the survivors and rescue crew and family members and we would be you know and I the whole goal of it was to sit down and have a conversation and the camera just happens to be rolling. So it's not a traditional interview to say, but by the time we were done almost on every single occasion, the guys are crying, I'm crying, the camera guy is crying, you know, we're all just a hot mess. Uh, and it happened 107 times, you know, and it happened even when I see clips of the interview, um, there's just parts of it that, choked me up and I know Lynn will probably share this story too but you know we're, we show when we're, we're speaking and we share the story we usually start with a trailer we have a two-minute video clip and there's a part where one of the survivors talks about the first time they saw an airplane and realized that it saw them too because many planes had passed over and Edgar Harrell talks about when the plane dipped his wing and they and dove down and the guys realized someone finally knew they were there and he gets you know, his voice is a little rattly in emotion and still saying that a thousand times. And I have probably actually seen it a thousand times because I edited it. Uh, I still get emotional with that moment. So there's, and then knowing these guys and having a personal relationship and seeing the emotions that they still face every single day when they reflect upon this event, like you can't help you're a human being, you can't help but be moved by that every time, just just seeing 
the guy, seeing the look in their eyes. And so I'd say that'll probably never go away. Lynn? That's what I was going, I was going to talk about uh, Ed Carroll. Um, what Sarah did was she, she put together a book trailer and it's about two minutes long and it, it's just like this mini encapsulated version of the whole Indianapolis story. And when it gets to the point in the story where Edgar Carroll, who was a Marine, one of the nine surviving Marines um, uh, who were on the Indianapolis crew, um, he talks about when Chuck Quinn's plane passes overhead and he he says, we started to wave our arms, we started to splash, we started to yell, we started to pray and, and seemingly just when, if he'd have gone any further, he would have passed us by. He didn't. You know what he did? He made a dive. And that's almost an exact quote. And I've seen it so many times. And every time I see it, I choke up and I tear up, which is a real problem because we're watching this usually right before we go before an audience to give a talk. <laughs> so, I've, so I've gotten to where... <laughs> So I've gotten to where I kind of try to walk out of the room or turn away. I can't, I mean, I haven't seen it a thousand times like Sarah, but I, I've certainly seen it hundreds of times. And it's just this raw, raw emotion. And really what Ed says, and Ed is still living, by the way. Uh, one of the, how many do we have now? 10, 11? Ten. Um, he lives down in Tennessee. But really that moment that he talks about where it seemed that if the pilot had gone any further he would have passed him by is emblematic of a lot of the moments that really caused me to be emotional in Indianapolis and it's it's all those near misses you know like um, I think of uh, the Ensign Brophy um, where during the rescue uh, Adrian Mark the pilot also from Indiana um, lands his plane in the water and there were, and, and Ensign Brophy says, oh my gosh, you know, rescue, I, I'm saved. And so he takes off swimming from this raft group to try to go climb on that TBY Catalina that just landed in the water after four uh, nights and five days. And his strength gives out and he slips below the water and drowns. It's those kind of near misses that really are the thing that um, get to me the most. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, the Crown Plaza Hotel, and Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the law firm of Bose, McKinney, and Evans, and the Bose Public Affairs Group, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and the McGinley's and the O'Donnell's have been friends for many, many, many Irish decades, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. We are on with authors Lynn Vincent and Sarah Vladek. They wrote an amazing book that you will not be able to put down. Don't believe me? Believe Kirkus Reviews. Believe Booklist. Believe USA Today. It's a New York Times bestseller. 
and it's called Indianapolis, the true story of the worst sea disaster in U.S. naval history and the 50-year fight to exonerate an innocent man. Thank you both for coming on. One thing I wanted to ask very quickly is, why the USS Indianapolis? There were plenty of ships, whether they were battleships or aircraft carriers, that were equally uh, famous, equally celebrated, but yet you chose the Indianapolis. Is there a particular reason? I mean, obviously we know some of the reasons, but you could have chosen other ships. You chose this one. Why? I think the Indianapolis is um, little known as the icon that she was and is. Uh, There are so many people that know the Indianapolis story only as a sinking story or only as a shark story. But the truth of Indianapolis is that she was the Pacific Fleet flagship. I mean, it was from her deck that Admiral Raymond Spruance really plotted out the path from Pearl Harbor to Japan, capturing all those islands in between, you know, taking it in turns with Admiral Halsey. But really, uh, Spruance was the mastermind behind that. Um, also, in that uh, in that way, she was the sort of the bookend to Pearl Harbor, the bookend to the USS Arizona, where Pearl Harbor was the beginning of the war. Indianapolis was the end of the war. She was the last ma- major vessel sunk in World War II, and also, of course, having delivered the atomic bomb, played a critical role in actually bringing the Pacific War and therefore all of World War II to an end. So I think for me, um, there are so many heroic vessels, and I got to read about so many of them and learn so much more than I had known before about World War II, but, and I know I'm biased here, but, you know, to me, she was just one of the most iconic ships ever. I would agree with that with exactly what Lynn said and then add to the fact that she was such an incredible ship and no one knew. And still, you know, a lot of people don't know more than the thinking story or the shark story, like they mentioned. But um, add to that then getting to know the crew and this fight that, you know, when I first got involved, they were still fighting to clear their captain's name. So there was just this element of the fact that these men had been fighting for 50 years to clear their captain and you know I had such a a respect for this effort and to see them do this and just you know to stand on the sidelines and cheer them on it it just made the the story more compelling I don't know um, there was more to it than being it was the story was never about just another ship the Indianapolis. It, um, it, it's always just been so much more than just another ship. So. Well, and one thing that we should point out here very quickly is uh, you mentioned Raymond Spruance. And as a proud IPS kid, I should point out that Raymond Spruance, who earned four stars, and he would have had five stars if Senator Richard Luger had gotten his way, but Raymond Spruance is a graduate of Shortridge High School here in Indianapolis, a proud <laughs> IPS kid. You mentioned earlier, just a few seconds ago, in your answer about the history of the USS Indianapolis. And I want to make sure the people who are listening understand that 
This was a ship that had served uh, as the flagship for Admiral Spruance, as you said. It earned 10 battle stars. It ferried Franklin Delano Roosevelt when he was president to various meetings. It really was a perhaps a first among equals in its class of heavy cruisers in the United States Navy. So it's no surprise that it became something that people looked at as a premier ship of the United States Navy in the Pacific. Is that fair to say? I think that's fair to say. I think one of the things that's interesting about that in terms of being a premier ship is that she was actually an older vessel. And Spruance, hey, he was he was such a humble guy. And I think the choice of flagship, uh, the choice of Indianapolis as his flagship is a reflection of that. But it's also a reflection of his skill as a strategist and a tactician. So instead of choosing an aircraft carrier or a battleship, he chose a cruiser and an aging one at that because Indy, I think, was already 12 years old by the time. Uh, That's right. Uh, chose her as his flagship. And the reason for that was is that he wanted a quick, agile vessel that he could, you know, actually go in. He he was very fond of uh, going in close to command these battles and, and observe the action rather than commanding from a standoff distance. Um, and he wanted uh, a vessel that was uh, agile and able to defend herself and bring a lot of firepower. But if she was taken out of action, as she was uh, for the first time on March 31st, 1945, that losing his flagship wouldn't weaken his fleet. So I thought that was That's uh, a great very point. wise. That's a great point. Also, uh, reflects a little bit of his humility. You know, I mean, other admirals, I won't name them, you know, they chose the big battleship <laughs> so that they could, they could go in and, and have their, you know, sexier ship to be the flagship. Sarah, what do you think? Yeah, I, I again agree with Lynn, and that um, you know, I, I think of what Indianapolis. You mentioned with the president; it was the first time that an acting president was taken out of the country, um, and it was aboard Indianapolis for the Goodwill tour in South America. And you know, Roosevelt really loved the ship, and you know. One of the things we get to talk about very briefly in the book, but, you know, we could have gone on and on, is about how they have these dances on um, the deck, you know, these nighttime dances um, with foreign leaders and dignitaries. Uh, and just, you know, I mean, it's, there's almost like a romantic part about this story. You know, we very much paint her as this, you know, almost, a woman in the story, and um, and that's because that's how a lot of the, the sailors and crew felt about it, and the leadership as well. And so, just you know, it it felt the need to elevate it to where to its rightful place in history because she was so significant in that way. Yeah. It would be remiss of me, uh, quite frankly, and I had this written down to make sure that I don't forget it. But it is my great uncle, whose name was George Murray, who was my grandmother's brother, who served in the Pacific in the same fleet that the USS Indianapolis did. He drove an LST 
for seven major invasions. He got drunk and was thrown in the brig and missed Iwo Jima. But he got lucky he got lucky enough to come back for Okinawa. And it's at Okinawa, I believe, that the Indianapolis is hit by it's a bomb, I believe, a plane's coming right at it, right at it. It it releases its bomb and it Indianapolis sustains significant damage. Then it goes and gets repaired. And it's while it's being repaired, and you guys correct me if I'm wrong, it's while it's being repaired that Captain McVeigh, Charles McVeigh, gets the assignment that involves Little Boy, the atomic bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima. That's correct. And, um, you know, <laughs> just one of the serious things we had to do after we finished this manuscript was to submit it to Admiral Sam Cox, who was the director of the Navy History and Heritage Command. We didn't have to. We just wanted his opinion. And the reason I bring him up is because um, Indianapolis was selected to carry the bomb. And this was the most highly classified naval mission of the entire war. And it is said that the reason that she was selected is because the USS Pensacola, who was also in dry dock, failed her sea trials. So after the Pensacola was repaired, uh, she failed her sea trials. And we actually had that in the book. But Admiral Cox said he wasn't sure that was the case. And that was kind of like one of, of two tiny changes that he suggested that we make but if it was the case that was one of another one of those uh, near misses that I mentioned you know if it hadn't have been for for that Indianapolis might have actually just retired as the victorious flagship of the Pacific fleet and after she came out of dry dock her captain McVeigh would have sailed her down to San Diego where I live and they would have done the training, probably never gone to sea again, and history would be quite different. But that's not what happened. Admiral McVeigh, or excuse me, Captain McVeigh got called into Admiral, um, Vice Admiral Purnell's office, and Purnell said, we're sending you on this mission. We're having two undercover army officers accompany a package. We're not going to tell you what the package is, but Every day you take off this mission and taking this package to Finian Island is a day off the war. And he got that message two days before they were to depart. So on July 16, 1945, they cast off from Mare Island, went down to Hunter's Point. The Army rolled up in these trucks, and they brought this mysterious package aboard the ship. Actually, two mysterious packages. One was a great big crate. And they heaved that aboard using a crane and shoved it into the port hangar and put a marine guard on it. The other package were two silver buckets that looked like ice, old-fashioned ice cream buckets. And they carried those aboard by hand using a, a pole strung through eye bolts at the top of these two cans. And those cans were taken to the flag secretary's quarters quarters and bolted to the deck. So what a lot of people don't know is that 
the crate actually contained unclassified materials and had all of these misleading quartermaster marks, Army quartermaster marks all over it that were specifically designed to divert attention from the two canisters that were in the flag secretary's office, in the flag secretary's quarters, rather. And those two canisters, one of them contained the fissionable components of Little Boy, the world's first atomic bomb, with the fusing and the casing removed. And it's on July 16th, 1945, that the atomic device was detonated for the first time. The test near Alamogordo at White Sands Missile Range. I was fortunate enough to be stationed there when I was in the military and to go up to what's called Trinity Site to see it and and read the history of it. And um, Samuel Morse famously said when he invented the telegraph, what hath God wrought? Well, I can only imagine what the scientists and military personnel at Trinity Site felt even though some of them wrote it down, specifically J. Robert Oppenheimer, who wrote, I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. What was being unleashed by this new power was unfathomable. And its importance on the USS Indianapolis, I'm sure, was equally unfathomable. And it's funny to, and Sarah, you could talk to this, it's it's funny to listen to the scuttlebutt, the guesses among the crewmen on the Indianapolis as to what's in these secret containers. Oh yeah. You know, that's one of the parts of the story that really makes me understand the age of most of the sailors that are aboard. You know, um, I think a lot of times we picture them being older and more mature, but these were teenagers for the most part. The good part of the crew was between the ages of 16 and 20. And so, you know, when this big mysterious crate comes aboard the ship and they're putting it on the deck and, you know, now it has a Marine guard and the Marines don't even know what they're guarding. They just know that they have to be on watch 24-7. And so, you know, what do the, what do the young men do? Well, they decide to start taking bets. And, <laughs> you know, they, <laughs> and, you know, you think they're pulling your leg and they said, no, we legitimately bet on things. And, you know, people thought it was everything from Rita Hayworth underwear for a USO show to um, scented toilet paper for Douglas MacArthur. <laughs> you know, there were, there were some realistic things. People thought maybe it was a bunch of maps for the invasion of Japan and, and whatnot. But, you know, m- more of the guesses were ridiculous, like a new car for MacArthur or the toilet paper, that kind of thing. And so, <laughs> you know, needless to say, none of them guessed even close. <laughs> <laughs> They deliver the, the the material, for lack of a better term, to the island of Tinian, and that's where the the bomb is put together, and eventually uh, dropped over Hiroshima in August of forty five. But then from Tinian, they're going to, I believe, the Philippines is their next stop. Is that correct? They they go to Philip the Philippines, Leyte Philippines via Guam, and and Guam is where things start to go wrong. Uh, Guam is where uh, McVeigh meets with Admiral Pruins, and Admiral Pruins says, you know, I don't, I don't need you for the flagship right now. Why don't you go over to Leyte and get that refresher training that you were supposed to get in San Diego? Because one of the things a lot of people don't know 
is that when they were at Mare Island under mm-hmm. repair from the kamikaze attack, a third of the crew turned over. So you have new sailors and new officers, some of some of whom, many of whom, had been civilians just three months before. So typically what would have happened is they would have gone from Mare Island to San Diego and trained up all these sailors and officers, and then they would have gone to sea. So Bruin says, hey, go over and, and get that training. And so Captain McVeigh goes to get his routing brief at the routing office in Guam. And also he goes to see an old friend of his, a Commodore. And at both of those places, he is assured for different reasons that the Philippine Sea is safe. And what Indianapolis is routed to do is to make almost a straight westbound shot from Guam to Leyte, Philippines on a route known as Route Petty. And he, uh, the Commodore tells him, you know, the Japanese are on their last legs. There's nothing to worry about. Uh, th- those are his exact words. The Japanese are on their last legs. There's nothing to worry about. And then at the routing office, he is assigned a speed of advance that is not sufficient to outrun submarines. And so that buttresses Captain McVeigh's opinion that there is indeed nothing to worry about. Otherwise, why would they give him such a slow speed? And then the third thing that happens is that they don't assign Indianapolis an escort. Uh, One of the little-known programs in World War II was uh, the escort program which was this escort duty was undertaken by destroyers and destroy a ship that's actually called a DE or a destroyer escort. So a ship like a cruiser did not have underwater sound gear. So they would usually send a destroyer or a DE with a ship like a cruiser so that if they did run into any enemy submarine and were attacked, either the, D- the destroyer could fight off the attack or if the submarine did get a hit on an American vessel, the destroyer could then come along and, and pick up any survivors. But at Guam, Captain Big Bay was told, you know, you don't need a destroyer. The Philippines Sea is safe, like we said. So under all of those conditions, on July 18th, 1945, I'm sorry, July 26, 1945, they uh, take off westbound from Guam. There are um, 1,100, am I right? 1,195 men aboard, Sarah? Right. Yeah, yeah 1,195 men aboard. And it's just this, you know, routine, relaxed sail that they're taking off on. I left out one thing, though. The fourth thing that went wrong at Guam was that the surface operations officer at Guam and the Commodore at Guam were in receipt of top secret ultra intelligence information that said that a quartet of Japanese attack submarines was headed from Japan down into the Philippine Sea. And they had specific information that one of them, I-58, was supposed to operate west of the Mariana Islands, uh, which is the island group that contains Guam. So under all of these conditions, with the deck unknowingly stacked against him, Captain McVeigh sets out on uh, July 26, 1945. Well, and, and, and those folks who have studied a little bit of history or perhaps have seen the movie Midway will know that the Americans had broken the Japanese code uh, earlier in the war 
and had used it to great effect, especially at Midway. But one of the things that I find so interesting when you read about it, and they and, and obviously this is before they know that the uh, atomic bombs are going to compel the surrender of Japan. They are preparing for what would have been the most murderous invasion of any country in the history of the world. So they're hoarding destroyers based on what I read. So please correct me. It's still unfathomable to me to not give an escort after they have delivered the bomb. I understand uh, if you read about it, that when Indianapolis went from San Francisco to Hawaii, I think it's the fastest voyage, the fastest time of any ship of that size ever, including the moment we're recording this podcast averaged over, I think, was it 32 miles an hour? That's insane. So speed is speed is of the essence. But after they deliver the bomb, it seems like speed wouldn't be of the essence. That to me is one of the greatest mysteries is why no escort. And I think, I mean, that is, you know, that wouldn't have necessarily given away that they knew enemies were in the water. It was just a standard practice. And in fact, Commander Hashimoto of the I-58 submarine that would ultimately sink the Indianapolis actually believed that there were other ships nearby. And that's why he took the actions that he did, because he assumed there's no reason why there would only be one ship of this size in this area at a time. And so, you know, he um, fired the torpedoes and and then essentially dived and hid for an hour and then surfaced and nothing was there. And he really, I mean, he said he sunk the ship or he thinks he did, but there was no confirmation because there was no evidence left. There wasn't a ship there still sinking. And so that, you know, to what you said, even the even the enemy assumed there would have been an escort at that time. Thank you for listening to us, Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guests today are Lynn Vincent and Sarah Vladek, who wrote the definitive account of the USS Indianapolis, the true story of the worst sea disaster in U.S. naval history and the 50-year fight to exonerate an innocent man. We have just gotten to the point where the torpedoes hit the USS Indianapolis right in the dead of night, like right after midnight or close, as I recall. Um, Lynn mentioned earlier that the crew had changed over a little bit. So you had hundreds of new sailors. This is probably their first mission or one of their first missions. And that only added to the confusion. Sarah, what did the survivors... So, Go ahead. Sorry, I didn't um, I'm mean, saying that some of these sailors, even young officers, some of the ensigns hadn't even been on the ship for two weeks, and this is their first billet. So, you know, they're kind of just overcoming seasickness, being away from their farms. You know, they had gone through training, obviously, but six months earlier, they were on a farm in the middle of the country. The biggest thing they'd ever seen before is a tractor, and those are in their own words. That's what they had told me, and then they see this you know, USS Indianapolis that's 610 feet long, this is going to be their new home. And so, you know, they are, they're as green as you get. And this is their first experience at sea and in the war. 
Well, and one thing that that you don't you don't picture you you don't fathom until you you watch documentaries or read accounts of the survivors is and and correct my history please the ship is hit with two torpedoes and the explosions are so violent the ship go down goes down sinks goes from perfectly fine to underwater in is it 10 minutes 12 minutes Yes, the the first torpedo hit at the 12th frame, and what that did is it tore off the bow almost instantly, and it was dangling there and kind of serving as a rudder. And so this is allowing the water to scoot, or you know, to to burst through the bulkheads really because the ship is plowing forward. They still have the propellers going, um, because when the second torpedo hits just moments later it hits the ammunition stores and it blows out all the power throughout the ship. So there's no communications, there's no power, there's no way for anyone on the de- uh, the bridge to communicate to the engine room, stop all engines. And, you know, in the, the protocol at the time is if you know that there's an enemy around, you get out of there, okay? So if you imagine the engine room says, okay, we're under attack, going forward they don't they can't see that the front of the ship is missing and it's open like a mouth and all this water is rushing in sinking the ship very very quickly and so there's like i said there's no communication there's no light it's a pitch black night the men said that you could barely see your hand in front of your face so without any kind of light and without direction and without anything coming over the pa because on a ship of that size you know, all communications, all commands, everything would be announced over the, the announcer, you know, the PA system. Well, they didn't have that. So they're waiting for commands on what to do that would never come. They couldn't even hear when, you know, about, I think it was about six minutes in when the ship had nearly a 90 degree lift, meaning tilting to the starboard side, that McVeigh gave the orders to abandon ship. And that had to be carried out man to man, yelling, because there was no announcing system. Uh, available for them to inform the ship. So the ship is nearly, you know, going down by the nose as the men are starting to, you know, to start abandoning the ship, to start getting life-saving devices. And as you said, this all happened in 12 minutes. So this is just after midnight. The men had just lain down, started going to bed for the night. You know, half of them are in nothing or you know maybe skivvies because it's very very hot in the pacific in the summer and so they're sleeping they're laying on the deck all over and 12 minutes later they're swimming in the middle of the pacific ocean in pitch black night wondering what the heck just happened they have no idea you know they they didn't see it coming and it happened so fast they weren't even able to get out proper communication without power they weren't be able to communicate with each other most of them just realized they're swimming and some of them were even alone you know there were there were a few groups that were spread out um, through it from the time the abandoned ship started abandoning the ship to the time the ship sank 12 minutes later the men had traveled about a mile and so people started abandoning ship right away they were spread out over this mile to begin with not knowing how many survivors there were and some groups they thought they were the only survivors with, you know, like Captain McVeigh, for example, ended up having a raft. He was one of the very few that had rafts. And out of the 1,195 men, only about 30 men got on a raft. So McVeigh and the nine men that happened to get on the raft, 
they thought they were the only survivors. So imagine that feeling in the middle of this vast Pacific Ocean with the closest land being 280 miles away. And there you are, floating, and you have no idea if anyone's coming for you. Well, and the other and thing... You would think, if, uh, go ahead, Lynn. Weigh in. I was just going to say, and and after that initial shock, what's interesting is, is that when the sun came up the next day, there was a lot of optimism because they said, oh, we're supposed to report for gunnery practice in Leyte, Philippines tomorrow, uh, the 30th of July, 1945. And when we don't show up, they'll send rescue. So there was actually a lot of optimism. There, there had been, we estimate, about 100 men who perished uh, during that first night because uh, Sarah mentioned it was midnight um, on the 30th of July. And uh, so they, you know, paddled through the night, whether they had life jackets on or just a few who had rafts. Some men had nothing at all, and they were just swimming all those hours until they could find somebody to latch onto or climb onto maybe a floater net. But when the sun came up, it was it was a beautiful day, and some of the people who either served as uh, orderlies for the captain or they were part of the gun crew, they said, hey, we think a distress signal got off, and when they miss us, they'll come and find us. And so it was interesting to, to read about that optimism, um, to hear about that that optimism from the men. But then uh, things kind of turned south. Uh, first of all, uh, one of the things that happened as the ship was going down is that the new engineering officer decided to dump fuel oil into the water. And the reason that he did this was because he was trying to shift ballast and correct the list as the ship was you know, going over to starboard. He was trying to make it go back over and, and keep the ship from sinking. Well, it didn't work, but what it did do was it just put this huge, huge, thick layer of fuel oil onto the surface of the ocean so that every single man was covered in this thick black tar. This fuel oil isn't like the oil that you put in your car or, or like gas. It's, it's thick, and the only way that you can transfer it even uh, to, to burn it is to heat it up. And so the men were covered in it and it was getting in their eyes and burning their eyes. So, you know, if, as if that wasn't bad enough, on that first morning, uh, what happens is the sharks show up. And that's, of course, one of the things that you hear about it every every year when Spike TV runs Shark Week. Um, but what's uh, interesting is that the shark population in the South Pacific was exponentially higher then than it is today. So you hear these men talk about these stories. And of course, the South Pacific Sea is so beautifully crystal clear that the men said they could see straight down for maybe 50 feet before the water sort of turned opaque. And underneath them, they, they could see these sharks, not dozens, but hundreds of them spinning around like a, like a tornado underneath them. And, you know, some of them were small, uh, smaller sharks, maybe eight to ten feet, but but some of them were quite large, fifteen. Um, how long did how big was the biggest one, Sarah? Um, I want to say Lyle Umenhofer described one as being over twenty feet. 
Yeah, over 20 but feet. But those would say they would be the slow ones, that it was the small ones that were meaner, but the big yeah. ones would just slowly swim by them. Yeah. yeah. So well, some guys, hit. they would... Go ahead. I would just say, uh, you know, uh, that the, the men described the shark attack. Um, there was this, this one sailor named L.D. Cox, and he was floating with his buddies, and then a shark just roared up, grabbed his buddy, and pulled him underneath, and it was so close that the, the force of the attack made a wave break over L.D. Cox, just like he was on a beach. And um, then another, another uh, sailor, Eugene Morgan, was on a floater net, and he was watching this other group of sailors on, on a floater net not far away. And he said, all of a sudden, about 10 sharks hit that floater net. And it was just fins and froth and chaos and screams. And then there was nothing. And so the men endured that day after day after day, four days of that in the water. Well, the other point I wanted to, to make was, and you guys have described it so incredibly well, is there was the oil. Not only that, there was the sun. So you're constantly being burned by the sun all day. You're also swimming about, bobbing about in salt water, which when they begin to get rescued, their skin starts to come off. People start to pull them out of the water onto the boats or to the airplanes or ships. And they're pulling the skin off these men because their, their skin is so corrupted they're being burnt by the sun during the day. Then they get cold as hell at night because of the extreme temperature change. They also become somewhat delirious. And I'm sure the survivors talked about this because they're thirsty as they can be, but all they have is salt water and some men drink the salt water and some men don't. So it's not only the sharks, it's not only the broken bones and the burns and the cuts from the actual explosion. They're also scattered. It's not like they're all in one, you know, little group, like they're in a baseball dugout. They're scattered all over the place. How did the men work with each other to try to keep each other alive? One of the quotes I read was one of the survivors said, the hardest thing was to stay alive to decide to die was easy. But how did the, the survivors work together to keep up morale and keep them physically alert enough to last the entire time they were in the sea? Lynn? Well, one of the main ways was prayer. Uh, one of the sailors said any man who was an atheist when he went into the water wasn't one when he came out. Another way was they, they would talk about home. Um, Another way was just sheer will and determination. Sarah talks all the time. There were there were men who said, if only one person lives, it's going to be me. And so it was a combination of these kinds of things. And and there were there were men who made great sacrifices uh, to keep others alive. One of them was Captain Park, who was the commanding officer of the Marine contingent on the Indianapolis. He was with what's commonly known as the Haynes Floater Group, which was the largest group and 
uh, Dr. Haynes, the ship's doctor, was in that group, as was Melvin Modisher, the, the, um, his assistant, the junior physician on Indianapolis, and so was Captain Park. And so that, this was a group of 400 uh, men, and most of them had life jackets. Some of them had nothing. And so Captain Park organized them into a, into a big group, and, and he would swim from sailor to sailor, encouraging them and uh, many times he would give up a life jacket to a man who didn't have one and then uh, you know the sailors were dying so new life jackets became available so so he'd get it get another life jacket and then he would give that to somebody else and he did this for three solid days until finally he just exhausted himself in the service of others so there were there were many sacrificial stories like that Sarah, what's your perspective? Um, I mean, I think we covered it pretty well with the fact that, it, you know, these men, um, to the man, when I interviewed them, they said they were never going to give up. Um, you know, they, um, there's a great story. Uh, Dick Steelen, who is a survivor that is still with us, um, talks about how when he left uh, home, he was one of the few that went on the ship. Uh, in May of 1945, and so not long before, uh, not too far before they went on the final sailing. And his dad, you know, said, took his hand at the train station when he said goodbye to him and said, Dick, you better come home. And, you know, Dick is a, uh, a smart aleck and he said, Dad, war's almost over, don't worry about it. He said, Dick, you come home. And Dick said that when he was in the water, he, every time he wanted to give up, he'd see his father's face. And those words stuck with him, if you better come home. And that's what he fought for. He held on to those things. And um, some, some of the guys said they held on to, you know, I, memories of their mother's cooking brought them home. You know, they're teenagers. They're, you know, they're, <laughs> they're not, they don't have a lot of world experience yet at this point. And so, you know, mom's cooking, especially if you haven't had anything to eat or drink for four days, that's pretty compelling. But, you know, like the, like Lynn said, the faith component of it is no small part. I mean, they just had this profound hope and faith that they were going to survive, and they did. And, you know, that's not to say that the ones who didn't have that didn't survive, but there was, you know, there were a lot of circumstances. Uh, there really is almost no reason why they should have survived. And, and the conditions, you had to mention dehydration, the shark, the hallucinations, the... Um, and even, you know, at some point, they, and when, by Wednesday night, they started turning on each other because of these hallucinations and believing that the buddy next to them was an enemy trying to kill them, they'd turn on them. So there was, I mean, every circumstance and the fact that no one knew they were missing to find them, you know, there shouldn't have been survivors and yet there were. And, uh, you know, when you meet these guys still to this day and you talk to them, there is that same stunk, that same spark, that same idea of I never gave up hope. And I, and I think that's really a big part of it. They eventually are rescued after what I'm assuming to them was an interminable amount of time. Four, four, four nights and five days, is that right? Or do I have it flipped? Five nights, four days. <laughs> five nights, five nights and four days. Uh, they're spotted by uh, 
aircraft. A PV one Ventura. Mm-hmm. A PV one Ventura. Uh, which, which is, as re- was recounted earlier in the podcast, uh, finally recognized them. You can only imagine it must have been really, really tough to see them, but it did, and it started the whole rescue process. At what point uh, did it become clear that the Navy realized, after these men became rescued, did the Navy realize, hey, we screwed up? Or is the rescue in the initial conversations with Captain McVeigh the beginning of the effort to pin the blame for this on him? Well, McVeigh would have said that he knew when he was floating in the water with his little flotilla of rafts for four days and five nights uh, that that the Navy was going to try to pin it on him. Uh, I believe, just I don't have any empirical evidence of this other than that I saw the naval message traffic is that when uh, Captain William Clater of USS Cecil J. Doyle sent in the message that he was picking up survivors of Indianapolis, which had been sunk four days earlier and nobody knew about it, that that was when the holy crap moment went through the upper echelon of the Pacific Fleet. And, um, you know, I don't think... uh, We have our own theories about why they pinned it on McVeigh, and these are not uh, these are theories, you know, backed up by data. But we we believe that that effort really began once Fleet Admiral Ernest King realized the extent of the failures in the upper echelon of the fleet. Um, Admiral King didn't live in the Watergate era, you know, since Watergate, and I'm a journalist, so. This is kind of where I get this point of view. Since the Watergate era, uh, tearing down um, heroes and, you know, reflective iconoclasm has really marked our national life, right? Prior to Watergate, you know, we, we held our military leaders in high esteem. We held our government leaders in high esteem. And military leaders held each other in high esteem. And our research, excuse me, our research showed that there were a lot of admirals who should have uh, been held accountable for the sinking of Indianapolis before Captain McVeigh ever got a look. And we believe at the end of the day, after a really thorough investigation, that's why Admiral King realized that. And he didn't want to parade those heroes of the World War II Pacific in open court in front of an adoring public. Um, instead, it was easy just to pin the blame at the lowest level. And, and for those of you who don't know, uh, we're referring to Ernest King, who was chief of naval operations, five-star fleet admiral, who uh, had a run-in, I believe, with Captain McVeigh's father, who was also a career naval officer. Do you really think that affected Admiral King's performance and attitudes towards this controversy, things that had happened earlier in King's career, or is that overhyped? I don't think it affected it at all. Uh, when he, th- there were actually two investigations. There was a court of inquiry at Guam uh, right after the rescue that commenced on August 13, uh, 1945, which was just a few days after the men were rescued. 
and uh, after that, um, actually, the court of inquiry recommended that McVeigh be court-martialed for negligence and hazarding his ship. But King really didn't feel that the court of inquiry people did a good job. And so he ordered a second investigation, and it's now sort of referred to as the Naval Supplemental Investigation. And nobody pulled any punches in that review. And that it was through that investigation that all of these things came to light about the, the fault of the Commodore at the, in the Philippines who never tried to find out why Indianapolis hadn't shown up yet about the fault of the service operations officer at Guam who knew about these submarines in Indy's past and yet didn't divert her and did nothing. The failures at Pearl Harbor in terms of the intelligence coups that they had uh, received. And so it was kind of like Fleet Admiral King set this ball rolling downhill trying to find out what really happened. And when he found out what really happened, he was like, Oh, shoot. Uh, I don't really like where this is going. And part of the evidence for that is, is that he ordered the court-martial of Captain McVeigh to be expedited even before all the evidence was in. And the specific evidence that wasn't in was the testimony of all of those admirals. And at the court-martial itself, and this is astounding. I did not know this before I started reading about it a little bit. The commander of the Japanese submarine, I-58, that sank the USS Indianapolis, the commander testified at McVeigh's court-martial and basically said there was nothing that McVeigh could have done to avoid my torpedoes. Do I have that right or am I mixing it up a bit? That's, that is correct. Uh, it actually is found because it was the first time in history the enemy was brought in to testify against one of our own. And so this was a national scandal. I mean, it was on all the newspapers. People wrote in letters of you know, everything you can imagine. And those all still exist in the National Archives. You can actually see them. But um, it, it was a big deal for him to come in and testify. And then when he did testify, he actually, you know, he understood enough English, but he could not speak it to it, you know, very well. And so he actually said he would have sunk the ship no matter what, but the translator did not translate it that way. And he said to the, you know, to his dying day, um, Hashimoto, you know, felt such remorse for that, that he couldn't convey that himself in the proper way. Talk to us a little bit. Lynn, about the results of the court-martial, and then a little bit about what happened in 1968 with Captain McVeigh and what drove him to commit suicide that day. Well, the results of the court-martial were that um, Captain McVeigh was convicted of negligence in, in hazarding his ship, and that that. Those were the legal results. The personal results were that there were a lot of families who blamed McVeigh after this, even though he was sent out with a low seat of advance, even though he wasn't given intelligence, even though he wasn't given an escort. As far as these families, you know, 
these families, they didn't know all those technicalities. They said, okay, the Navy said it's Captain McVeigh's fault. It's Captain McVeigh's fault. And for the rest of his life, he would receive letters. First, it was a huge river of these letters, horrible acid pen letters that said things like, if it weren't for you, I'd still have a husband. Or if it weren't for you, my daughters would be spending Christmas with their family, with their father. And these letters uh, continued to come on birthdays and Christmas and the anniversary of the sinking. Meanwhile, Admiral, or uh, Captain Bay, rather, he uh, never was in command again. He retired uh, a couple years later in a, in a quiet ceremony. And then he went into insurance. Um, and it wasn't until 15 years passed. 1960, when when the men uh, invited him to the first ever USS Indianapolis Survivors Memorial Reunion, which was held in the city of Indianapolis, the ship's namesake city. And they invited him to um, be the keynote speaker. And to a man, none of his crew blamed Captain McVeigh for what happened. And not even all the families did. I want to be clear about that, that it was, it was just some of the families that did. And so um, it was a really moving moment, I think. Uh, he was very nervous about going to that reunion. And he flew in and, and landed at the airport. And not really knowing how the men were going to receive him. And uh, I can barely tell this without uh, getting choked up. But uh, you know, in those days, they didn't have jetways like we have now where you, you know, you walk sort of right into a hallway and up into the terminal. They had the loading stairs and they would, you know, climb down right. the loading stairs and walk across, walk across the tarmac. So he gets to the top of the loading stairs and he sees these two lines of people, like almost like a gauntlet. And it's, it's 25 carloads of, of men and their families, survivors and their families that have come to the airport to greet him. Sorry, I could hook up. And when he gets to the bottom of the ladder, somebody yells, attention on deck. And all of those men who, some of them are, you know, young boys who have now become young men, and some of them are young men who have passed in the middle age, they all snap to attention. And uh, he walks across that ramp, and, and they all begin to cheer. So that's a, a really special moment. And uh, the reunion was very special. It was the first time that many of them had uh, um, seen each other or, or even, to be honest, talked about what happened to them because most of these men never told anybody about those days in the water. And Sarah, I'll let you pick up from here. What's really cool about this thing, this part of the story is the fact that the wives and many of them are, you know, married by now. And they talk about this was the first time they were able to share with anyone what, you know, anyone who understood what they had gone through to share these stories. And this was their first, like, way to handle this PTSD that was never yet, you know, had not yet been diagnosed. And so they got together. They, um, they said they stayed up all night every night and partied <laughs> and this was at the hotel Severin. um you know i mean man i what, what i wouldn't give to be a fly on the wall at that party and in fact actually the reporter um i have to look up his name but the reporter who covered that is actually still living in, in indianapolis and he 
you know, should there be a reunion this year, um, he is planning on attending. And oh, so, we'll have to find out uh, who that reporter is. That's absolutely, we need to do I, that. I have his name. I just don't know it off the top of my head, but um, I can send that over to you. But he, you know, he covered this event. And it, like I said, it's at the Hotel Severin. And I was speaking with survivor Dick Thielen this morning, and he showed me a picture of, of all of them gathering at Victory Park to take the picture. And there was over 200 survivors there. Um, and just um, what a reunion it was. And so... Uh, you know, Dick still chuckles about it and how they all remain friends. And in fact, the pilot, Chuck Gwynn, um, who was the one who spotted them in the water, um, became very good friends with many of them. And Dick was telling me how he and another survivor who were still living um, by the name of Harold Bray and Chuck Gwynn would all go on camping trips and cruises together after the war. And I was like, you went on a boat again? <laughs> I don't know how to go on a boat again. <laughs> Jerry, I, I would have Jerry to, LaFollette. Um... I would have to put myself I was born in 67 so uh, I remember seeing the movie in the theater like I think every other living person but it's 1975 and the movie is Jaws Mm -hmm. and I didn't really understand what was being said I just remember going "Ooh, cool an Indianapolis reference there weren't that many back then. Indianapolis wasn't the city uh, then that it is now, a Super Bowl hosting city. But I do remember asking my dad. Now, both my parents were in the Marine Corps, and they uh, were history buffs. And I remember kind of asking them later about what does that mean? And they didn't even really know. What was the impact of Quint's speech about the USS Indianapolis, what was the impact on the survivors, A, and B, did any of them, I've always wanted to ask this question, and I didn't have the stones to ask Mr. O'Donnell, but did any of, were any of them in the movie theater just innocently going to see this blockbuster movie, and then all of a sudden they start talking, Robert Shaw starts talking about something that they actually experienced Lynn um I can tell you I I will let Sarah speak to the second part of that but I can tell you that uh part of the impact on the survivors was that many many of them as I had mentioned before had never spoken of what happened to them in 1945 so here it is 30 years later and their families don't even know a lot of them, maybe their wives knew, but their um, their children didn't. So, for example, wasn't it Jim Belcher who went to see the film, Sarah? Uh, no, um, David Thielen. David Thielen? Okay, you take over then, because I thought it was Jim. <laughs> um, they, so, as was starting to say, most of the guys did not talk about this, did not think about it, did not want to read any book or watch any movie that had anything to do with sharks in it at all. So um, there was a survivor by the name of Bob Goff who actually became, he was a fisherman and he actually was a shark hunter. And so even though Jaws wasn't based on him, there was a lot of characteristics that were similar, but for the most part, these guys did not definitely did not go see Jaws or didn't happen to go into that movie. Um, But as I was saying, 
their children did. And they were, most of them were teenagers at the time or a little older. And um, Dick Thielen's son, David Thielen, went to watch it. And he came home from the movie theater that day and he went to his mom and said, Hey, mom, like, you know, I saw this movie and there was this amazing part where there was this guy and he served on a ship called Indianapolis and he was a shark hunter. And um, he talked about all these shark attacks. And the mother said, go talk to your father. He was on that ship. And that was the first time David had ever heard that his father served on the Indianapolis or that he survived that kind of ordeal. He had no idea. And there's dozens of similar stories to this, but they had no idea that their fathers had gone through this. That's how close or tight-lipped they were about the story and what they survived. They knew that their father was in the war. They knew that they had nightmares and that their mothers helped, you know, deal with those nightmares, but they had zero idea what they went through. Um, some read uh, the first book, Lynn mentioned earlier, Abandoned Ship, and that's, and that's how uh, Jim Belcher found out was after reading the book. But with Jaws, they didn't even know that their dads had gone through that. It always strikes me as, a, a, and by the way, that book is Richard Newcomb. I think I said Robert earlier, Abandoned Ship. But um, it always strikes me the difference between that era and this era. Mm-hmm. I mean, this era, if guys went through that, they'd be coming back and trying to get on the cover of People or get a book deal or, <laughs> you know, and, and those guys just came home, got married, went to work, went to work. Yeah, watch Best Years of Our Lives in an Academy Award-winning film that's that discusses that very uh, topic: men men coming home from war and and reinserting themselves back into their family lives and home life. Is it fair to say that Jaws served as a catalyst for more reunions, more public accolades? And eventually, perhaps, uh, putting the focus on the Indianapolis to the extent that Captain McVeigh eventually became exonerated? Um, I would say that Jaws was really the first time that the story was brought to national attention. Um, Richard Newcomb's book, Abandoned Ship, actually did more for bringing the survivors together in terms of actually having reunions and reconnecting, um, that's what that did. But Jaws made other people aware of this story being true. And it really did lead to quite a few events that led to the exoneration. So as you mentioned earlier with Hunter Scott, the young kid from Florida, who's now almost 40, um, Hunter, you know, he served, he's a pilot in the Navy. And he is one of the main, you know, he was very involved mm. with the exoneration of Captain McBay. He was inspired by this by watching Jaws when he was a little boy. And same with Captain Bill Toady, who was very involved in the exoneration. Um, his, his, you know, his origin kind of goes back to Jaws, too. He was serving at the Naval Academy um, in Annapolis when Jaws came out. And as a plebe, he was forced to stand in the middle of the lunchroom yelling out the movie showtime for the first year of school. (laughs) And Jaws was in the theater for a year. (laughs) And so he finally got to see it at the end of his plebe year, I believe. And so he'd been yelling out the times for this movie for almost a year before he got to see it. 
And then he finally went and watched it and went back to his, um, one of his professors who was E.B. Potter and uh, who, you know, has written phenomenal books about World War II history and um, teacher at the Naval Academy. And he, and, you know, Bill wanted to know right then and there if that was true. And um, Mr. Potter, I'm not sure of his rank at the time, but he you know, informed Bill that he needed to read more about the story. And that kind of got Bill going. And Bill ended up serving on the namesake submarine and commanding the namesake submarine Indianapolis. And then he was an integral part in the exoneration of Captain McVeigh. So in those ways, Jaws really did play an important part in the legacy of this story. Captain McVeigh eventually does get exonerated through the efforts of the student you mentioned before and the United States Senate, particularly John Warner. And I think it's Senator uh, Robert Smith from New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. Uh, just in the couple minutes we have left, because I want to let you go, even though I'm, I'm, I've exhausted about 10% of my questions, but how did the exoneration finally come to pass because I know it's an important focus of your book. And then I have one more question, then I promise to let you go. The way the exoneration came to pass, it was, um, you know, Hunter Scott, this this young boy, uh, he actually started with a history fair project and he uh, won his local history fair. And I, I, and then uh, Congressman, Joe Scarborough, who is now Morning Joe on MSNBC, um, he was a Florida congressman at the time. He put Hunter's project on display in his office in Florida. And, and um, eventually, uh, they approached uh, Senator Bob Smith from New Hampshire, as you mentioned, and said, hey, let's, let's, um, let's try to get some exoneration language through the Senate and the Congress to get McVeigh exonerated. The reason they got to that in the first place is that the, the, the survivors and the survivors organization had long been fighting to exonerate McVeigh. But every time they would try to get the ball in the end, end zone, uh, they couldn't make it happen. Uh, the Navy would say, nope, the court martial is legally sound and he is going to stay convicted as far as we're concerned. And so finally, when Senator Smith got involved, he and his staff did their own research, and they came around to see uh, Hunter's point of view, and Hunter was working with the survivors as well. And so uh, finally, um, in September of 1999, Bob Smith convinced Senator John Warner of the Senate Armed Services Committee to try to, uh, excuse me, to hold a hearing. And so they had a hearing, and, and a whole bunch of survivors came to the hearing, and Captain Bill Cody came to the hearing, and Hunter, at the age of 14 by then, actually testified at the hearing. And the hearing went well from the survivor's point of view, but Senator Warner would not advance it to the floor for a vote. And he dug in his heels for several, several months until finally he got a letter from a very unexpected source. And that unexpected source was Commander Mochisura Hashimoto, the Japanese subskipper who sank Indianapolis. And uh, Bob Smith told me that when Warner got that letter, he was just flabbergasted. 
And he called Smith down to his office and said, look at this. Can you believe this? And here is this Japanese skipper who by then was a Shinto priest in Kyoto, Japan, saying, look, this man needs to have this black mark removed from his record. You know, our two nations have forgiven each other, and, and it's time that you forgive this man. And so Warner allowed the vote, and the vote passed, and then Captain Cody entered that exoneration language into McVeigh's posthumous record, and that's how he was exonerated. And that was uh, 2001. Sarah, my last question to you is, before we wrap up quickly, when did the men on the USS Indianapolis finally solve the mystery of the mystery boxes and containers? When did they realize that, oh my God, the atomic bomb was aboard our ship? They So the men were in the hospital in Guam by then. Um, they This was on August 6th that announcement came over the loudspeaker. You know, some of the guys said they were in chow line or at lunch line. Others were still in hospital beds. But it, everything, the music stopped and a speaker came over, uh, a voice came over the loudspeaker announcing to everyone there, Japan has, um, the bomb has been dropped on Hiroshima. And they're hoping for a surrender from Japan. Of course, it took another bomb in order to do that. But that news spread very quickly through Guam. And it was the nurses there who actually had been given the information to tell the survivors that they were the ones that transported that material that allowed the um, Tibbetts and the Enola Gay to drop that bomb um, on August 6th. So they, they found out while they were in the hospital that they were responsible and what's also interesting is that the men, um, Furman and Nolan, who were the two army officers who went aboard Indianapolis to transport the material, they had become friends with many of the men during that journey. And so they stopped into the hospital um, and were very saddened to find that many of the men they'd grown close to, like Casey Moore and many of the officers, because most of um, the officers were killed in the sinking. Um, and so they, they, you know, they were very saddened to find out that these men that they'd grown close to had passed away. But they were there and got to speak to the men that survived and um, and to, you know, relay that information that they were the ones who carried the bomb. We want to dedicate this podcast to two proud Navy men, uh, both of whom I have had the privilege to know and shake their hands. One of them is our current governor, Eric Holcomb. And the other is James O'Donnell, the greatest East Sider of all time. We thank them both for their service. We have been talking with Lynn Vincent and Sarah Vladek, authors of an amazing book called Indianapolis, the true story of the worst sea disaster in U.S. naval history and the 50-year fight to exonerate an innocent man. It is on Amazon. I'll post the link when I post this podcast. Also, please go on Facebook and join the USS Indianapolis group. Uh, the Leaders and Legends podcast is going to make a donation. Actually, we're going to buy a bunch of T-shirts that are for sale, which I found out actually through Sarah's Facebook page. 
Lynn and Sarah, thank you so much for your time. I am truly honored to be able to speak to two people who have dedicated so much of their time to honoring our veterans. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Thank you.